0: Welcome, listeners. This is Emmett, and you're about to listen to your weekly installment of Exhaust. In this episode, we talked to Ian Corey. We have him back on to discuss three articles he wrote on entertainment and art and sports in the time of COVID. It's a great series of pieces, and I encourage you to read them. You can find the links in the show notes. Before we got started, though, I wanted to tell you that this year, John and I are looking forward to expanding the podcast a little bit and being a little bit more ambitious than we were last year. And the first very small step in that direction is that we now have a podcast-specific Twitter, which is at ex-h-a-u-s-t podcast on Twitter. So you can find us there. And the second thing is, And I'm always uncomfortable asking you guys for anything, but if you could please rate and review us in the iTunes store, we'd really appreciate it It'd help us get seen, help us grow the podcast so we can keep finding more interesting guests and more interesting subjects to talk about and bring them to you. That being said, we'll have more announcements and bigger announcements as the year rolls on. But for now, why don't you just kick back and enjoy the episode with Ian. Thank you so much. think what we'll do is we'll ask you about the first one sure and to just like talk about what inspired the piece because you know i don't want to toot our own horn or anything but it was like kind of exciting to see that like after our conversation you started working on a series that seemed to like touch on some of the stuff we talked about in the episode we did episodes we did with you because i didn't know how to compress files uh when we released it luckily i do now so we can go for as long as we want and i'll compress <laughs> <Wonderful>. it yeah <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was was a combination. I think this is kind of like why we have good conversations to begin with is we've got similar things on our our mind when it comes to uh, media and particularly the, the way that like the internet and COVID in this to speak only to 2020 has like shaped the media that exists in the world. It actually started with me watching the NBA bubble in August and just being like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And I'm conflicted because I love watching it. Like I'm having a lot of fun, but I also find it to be like deeply disconcerting on some levels. And I, I was trying to figure out why. And so I started writing the basketball part of it, but I pretty quickly realized that like, if I jumped right into the basketball stuff, it would kind of be like too fast for a lot of the ideas that I was working on so i wanted to first start something with something smaller and more related to like what my audience already is aware of which is music and then once i had sort of built out the like this list of concepts and contradictions that exist in the live streaming era go with the readers and apply that to basketball and then the code orange thing kind of just like came about as i was writing it like i kept writing more and more code orange stuff into the first part and was like this is just its own thing i need to take this and like when they kept coming
0: out with more and more material or doing like weird selective merch drops or like you know remastering whatever live stuff they just did you know Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it's a band that i've wanted to write about at length for some time like i've taken a few like small like i think i reviewed i am king when it first dropped uh and i've done some like short live reviews from when i've seen them but i've never taken like a really serious critical eye to their work and i think they their position in heavy metal at the moment deserves some scrutiny and some analysis in order to explain like why this band and why now
0: my sense when you the first part of who will entertain in america when you're taking a look at the difficulties in streaming for like live music and stuff like that a lot of it i mean is frankly just like class oriented Mm-hmm. not explicitly but like that's quite obviously what's being looked at like how are these smaller bands going to compete or how are you going to survive in this moment i mean i thought it was particularly interesting when you interviewed the guy who like does that crazy shit where he plays through entire fall of troy albums mm-hmm. which i would like watch part of it and i was like i can't believe this guy is doing this right now and he was doing it like he was tying his shoes right. like it was <laughs> he had it down
1: yeah, that's Sado Anna Dollingham from the band Semaphore. Uh, he also plays in Detach the Islands and like a bunch of other like Brooklyn mathcore and yeah. super technical. It's
0: content. clear he's fluent in the genre while watching yeah. it. But like one of the things he talked about is that it'd get like ID tagged and stuff like that. I assume that's almost like, you know, the type of copyright infringement uh, stuff that like pops up when you're doing it. So I know on YouTube if you like play too much of something and it has the copyright stuff in there, it'll flag it. Yep. and then demonetize it unless you change it. So I mean I think what your piece captured is that when you go you you have to disabuse yourself of the naive sense that like you just make do and survive because immediately you enter entire regimes of copyright, of technical specificity, of whatever that the entire streaming economy lives in.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there are some musicians who are already good at that stuff because they're just naturally inclined towards video production or online content. But for a lot of the people that I spoke to, the sense that I got was that no one had really considered that this was going to be any part of their job at any point. So like a folk act, sure they can, you know, and some of them to their advantage, it can seem really intimate if it's just, you know, their iPhone, them with a guitar. That can be really powerful for the right person. But if you haven't built up an audience that's going to go along with you, then you're competing against the people that have. And also against the people that have, you know, higher budgets that maybe they are like independently wealthy, which is the case with a lot of independent music and allows people to, to kind of skate by.
0: <laughs> yeah. You don't say, you know, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was watching um, Chris Ott because he got bored during the pandemic would start to do these chart sweeps or would like review certain things. And one of the things he talked about is the documentary that came out about the record store, other music mm-hmm. in New York. And he was like, this shit is such crazy hagiography hey, because it's either these irresponsible rich kids Or these like total dilettantes who are like screwing over their children's future trying to run a fucking record store who's like this is crazy and like that whole like the people who are independently wealthy and make it into independent music i mean i think people forget that like to do this or to be like big or whatever there's a reason why for a long time in music the two people who are successful are people who come from poverty and people who are basically industry plants within the wealthy communities of LA Mm -hmm. Um, because only wealthy people and incredibly impoverished people have the open time to just fuck around and figure that stuff out.
1: Right. Same with basketball. It's not a comparison that I draw, but like you think of the two best players in the last decade, LeBron James, who came from shit all in Akron, Ohio, and Steph Curry, who is the son of an NBA all-star, you know, and like both of them are absolutely incredible in very different ways, but like, it kind of speaks to, you know, one of them was in the gym all the time because he could be, one of them was in the gym all the time because he had to be, and they're both terrific and both have won championships. So I'm not taking away from either of those things, but it just sort of speaks to the conditions that people become successful in entertainment
2: through. To bring it in so it's something that I've been thinking about a bit too is like I think the entrepreneur brain stuff kind of almost was coming out ahead of this reality a little bit or like COVID sort of um, accelerated this reality because there is like you're I'm sure very aware Emmett that now like independent thinking and being an online intellectual is kind of a burgeoning field Um and one of the things about that though is it's like you can't just be a guy who like retired your girl all the time. You have to be that guy, but also you have to know how to edit videos, um, shoot them in a good way. You know, like you basically have to be one of those like totally like one man show ASMR dudes who has like everything just on fleet. You uh. know what I mean? <laughs> like, but you know, doing whatever you're doing because, you know, people will naturally gravitate towards somebody who just has like better quality stuff going on. And totally. So suddenly you can't just be in your, what do they call it? Like a, uh, like your area of focus or whatever, just like whatever you're doing, isn't all that you're doing anymore. You have to have like a stack of stuff that you can do to get yourself out there, which is sort of like a brand new problem in a lot of ways for it's a brand new large scale problem. I guess there were always people who were kind of figuring that out, but now it's like your choice is to either be rich and successful or like to be able to do this. You know, like in terms of being an intellectual, like either you teach somewhere, you know, and like you're you have a salary and you made it or you didn't make it. And like now you're screwed and you have to figure it out. And thankfully, you have a lot of time, you know, when you're not at McDonald's or whatever. Like there's a guy, he does a history podcast called History Time, and it's like excellent. It's like what the History Channel really like always should have continued to be. Instead of, the,
0: instead of being the Hitler channel, as my uncle used to call it, like, Space that's what aliens and before. Hitler. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. He's like continuing the, you know, time honored old history channel uh, tradition, including having a British accent. And, you know, he has a YouTube component and a <laughs> podcast, but now he's like as much as he can, like traveling on site and like recording and stuff because his Patreon has like popped off enough that he can afford to do that. And so. Like, and he got a, like a BA in history and he just like, couldn't figure it out beyond that, I guess. So it's worked out better for him in the end, I think, Mm because now he's actually like bringing it to a real audience that cares instead of stuck in the mouse, like trap of academia as it can be for many people.
0: Yeah. It's like the, it's, I mean, I think part of what your series is looking at Ian is like the liberal arts of selling yourself to live.
1: Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And one of the other things that I kind of wanted to leave on the edges of the, or the margins of the first piece was like, where do you sell yourself and who's actually, you know, who's running the shop that you're selling yourself at um, and how that can kind of stand in opposition or work cross purposes with the, you know, cause like Sidhu, for example, um, who I interviewed and who I, I think is a really, really great musician um, mentioned that, you know, he was, he makes his money outside of playing music. So he was donating his proceeds from those live streams to the bail project, but he was doing it on Twitch, which is owned by Amazon. And so I don't begrudge him for making that choice. Like, I think he, he had every right to do that. And like, I don't know where else you're going to go, which is sort of the point here, but even if you're using your art to sustain yourself or to sustain like some other project bigger than yourself, you're going to run into these like really Mm -hmm kind of hazy moral situations where you're ultimately, you know, before playing in a bar, sure, maybe the bar sucks or maybe like the owner is an asshole, but at least it's not Jeff Bezos's bar, you know?
0: Yeah, bar Bezos, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, I think that that's sort of where we are now. One of the things we talked about, so we just um, talked with Kyungmin's son over the weekend about his book, The, uh, the Eclipse of the Demos, Cold War anti democratic theory before neoliberalism. And one of the things that we talked about is um, compliance versus like consent or contract. Mm-hmm. And what you're looking at with these streaming things like, okay, so you have this art that you need to basically put on the market. That's just the world. That's not like a moral evaluation or whatever. You know, that's pretty much how it's always worked in some way or another. But now you're entering into someone's own platform regime to do that. And so you have to comply. There's no way. And that is totally arcane and like beyond you, like how those things get adjudicated, you know, how they get represented. They're fiefdoms under themselves. Uh, The laws aren't necessarily in common from platform to platform, even if there's the same sort of basic affinity. There's no democratic processes for figuring this out it's totally occluded from the eye
1: 100 percent, yeah and like going to your point about like the copyright issue that can spring up too it's like youtube has different copyright rules than instagram does and that twitch does like all three of these and if you're like serious about getting your art out there you should be trying to get it on as many platforms as possible and they're all going to have different requirements and different things that they incentivize for on each of those platforms so how do you tailor your performances to fit into as many places as possible to keep those eyes on you so that you can continue to make a living while you can't tour the other option i guess is to have a great merch game which is something i didn't really get into because i was mostly interested in like the performance aspect but i suppose that would be a way to skirt this issue
0: i mean having a great merch game is fucking hard though like that's not like that's a that's a whole other skill set, and when we touch on Code Orange at the end, like it's the only tighter merch game is, of course, Converge.
1: Yeah, I would say Converge. I mean, Code Orange still haven't had their Jane Doe design. Right.
0: Yeah, you know? the totally iconic uh, thing, but their ability to iterate and I love cat- that you
2: brought up Kiss Army.
0: Yeah, dude, totally. In that
2: vein, like. Like, perfect, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, they're kings of merch, and you don't even think of that anymore because it's like, oh, they're like an old 80s band or whatever, but they, like, rocked it.
0: Yeah, dude, that Kiss had merch on everything. You might kiss coffins. Yep. Like, <laughs> kiss army till death.
2: And it was a similar sort of thing, too, I think. was think you were talking about that in the piece, was, like, they kind of created an ideology for you to fit into, and then the merch just sort of sells itself, like, in a way. The merch has to be good, but if you bought into it, then you're going to buy, like, you know, I bought fucking Rhapsody t-shirts and shit like that. So what? it's not accounting for taste.
0: Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> I remember I sat next to this kid. I think his name was Miguel and like religion class junior year. And like every time there was a new children of Bodom merch drop, like that dude was on it. You know, I remember reading an interview with, Oh man, this is gonna date me. I remember, uh, I remember reading an interview with Planes Mistaken for Stars when yeah. they had just released Up in Them Guts or were about to in Skyscrapers Magazine, which was a free zine or like cost maybe a couple bucks. That was thick because it had so many ads and stuff. Um, it was black and white, and you could pick it up at like independent record stores. And I remember getting it, and that's how I discovered them because I was like, "Wow, Planes Mistaken for Stars is a great name." And one of the things the guys talked about is that in the age of, I mean, this is such like an aughts complaint in the age of uh, digital downloads or whatever, like there weren't as many people like spending their entire paycheck as teenagers on like a back catalog of like artists, like gear, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we might be close to that now with the way everything's been aestheticized and like how much like fashion is a part of our lives. So the merch game gets tighter. But I remember being like, damn, like all my friends are old school heavy metal heads who still fucking do that. Like the drummer for my band works at like the men's fine clothing store downtown so that he can get enough money to buy new drum heads and to like buy even the European and Japanese releases of like fucking Nile records.
1: Yeah. 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 (laughs) But like to that point, like, which bands can even break through to build that kind of relationship with their audience beyond the music itself. Like not every band is Kiss. Um, And I bring, I brought up Kiss's example, mostly in the world of live touring because they early in their career, they didn't just play the major cities. They would take these like really weird out of the way routes that played mostly in like the middle of the country. If you want to talk about like flyover country, I yeah. want to call it.
0: And not only that, they didn't have a major selling record until kiss alive. The double disc came out because mm-hmm. they couldn't replicate in the studio what they did live. And so that was their first like big seller, right? You know? They were and, the live band.
1: And so they don't, they were a band that weren't able to sell a lot of records because in my opinion, their music wasn't very good, but <laughs> uh, I, just a personal taste thing. It's not, it's not for me but they clearly were able to connect with a lot of people through this other means playing live and like developing a real like reciprocal relationship with their audience so which bands in the streaming era are able to do that you know and all which bands are able to pivot to a new skill set in order to build that relationship and how is really what that first piece was about i was trying to like break down all of the different barriers of entry and all the different ways around those barriers that you can find, depending on what you, as a musician, are good at.
2: Yeah, well, you mentioned the zine, and I was just thinking, like, that was sort of something that could happen back in the day. Like, you could have this weird kind of unofficial network of like independent music scenes where, like, things are circulating by mail uh, to different cities, and like cities can know about what's going on in another city because they hear about it by like mail or their buddy on the phone or something like things sort of could happen in this local, but like semi connected way. I was just wondering, like when you were talking about in the piece, it makes it feel like that is sort of gone as a possibility, I guess is what I mean. And now we're in the middle of COVID, which is sort of like, this is weird and when will it end? But like for the time being, you can't even tour as easily as you could before and make a name for yourself as like, well, you know, I've seen that band live somewhere. It's just like everything's different, and it you know, it reminds me of the TikTok superstars thing, where it's like random people are just getting picked up out of their bedroom because they're on TikTok. The sort of the coordinates of the whole game feel like totally shifted in a way.
0: Uh, it's sad that more kids won't have the incredible live experience of seeing the ska core band against all authority play at a tiny venue in Chicago and when they go to cover the dead Kennedys uh holiday in Cambodia they replace the Pol pot chant with George Bush.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of thing that's harder to replicate over streaming. And I mean thank God like the idea of like a ska core band <laughs> yeah. on Instagram live, you know, doing some like resist core stuff is like oh
0: brutal dude no, so brutal. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, I'm also like glad it's not how I was, how it was when I was a teenager, right? Like, you know, when I take a look at the SoundCloud rap kids or whatever, you know, especially all the ones that have died young, which is like super tragic, it's obvious that, you know, for a while I was like, damn, like, where'd the edge go? And then I was like, oh, here it is, you know, like when Juice World and like Lil Peep died, I'm like, oh, okay, like that's where it went. But, I'm also glad, Finn McKenty made this point back in the um, Stuff You Will Hate days where he was like, I'm kind of relieved that you don't have to be a totally fucked up person to enjoy this music because it used to be that in order to get into this music, you had to like, dude, I mean, some of the people that, fuck man, I remember there's a dude who was just like around in the heavy metal scene because like when you live in the burbs, there's like nowhere to go. It's just like you're around the other people who are- into the other stuff you are. And like, you know, that's it, you're hanging out. I remember like one of those dudes, like a couple of years after we stopped hanging out with him, he was still kind of like around and getting put away because he like had recorded some videos of him, like fucking raping some junior high kids or whatever. Like other people would, uh, that he showed to some of my other heavy metal friends and they immediately called the cops. They were like, what the fuck? You know, or like people that like cut themselves for fun, like all sorts of stuff. That was like my experience of getting into heavy music is that you got into heavy people.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can even see the way that that changed over time on the internet. Like you go into like Metal Archives forums, for example. And like, even by the time that I got there, they had already sort of gone through this like very dark phase of the forums where it was like populated by like legit fringe weirdos you know, who like all liked heavy metal. So they ended up together on the same website. And then as the internet kind of became more and more popular and more different styles of music could reach a very wide audience that may not have had access to those ideas and those sounds before you see that that fringe then goes back to the fringe again on the internet. Um, And yeah, I do think it's a good thing that like I can go to, or I could go to a metal club in Brooklyn or even when i lived in chicago same thing and like not feel like i'm surrounded by people who are planning on doing horrible things to me or each other
0: i'm good to move on to sort of the basketball piece because i i mean i don't i don't watch basketball i think it's like a beautiful game it's just never been a part of my life in any way so i was very interested to hear what you said had to say about the bubble and like the politics around, especially because of all the riots, et cetera, this summer. And that's sort of when this was kicking off.
1: Yeah. it's Basketball is a, a very interesting sport to think about even beyond the sport itself, the structure that exists around the NBA, which I would like to delineate from basketball itself. Like basketball is the game. The NBA is the Structure that exists on top of it. Yeah, it's the thing
0: you enter into to do the game, just like the music with the streaming stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. And as a league, it has always had a very strange tension in the center of it around the fact that the players are majority black the league's owners and front offices are majority white. And for a long time it was sold. So there's a lot of like culture war tensions that play out, but there's also just a like a class dynamic that plays out between, you know, these like hedge fund guys that have bought up all the teams in the last few decades versus someone like Giannis and Tentacupo who grew up selling shoes on the streets of Athens, Greece, you know? Um, And so you know, COVID happens, the NBA shut shuts down. And what I sort of felt was like the first moment where it became very real to a lot of people in this country, like what was about to happen. And then as the the league is starting to gear up and figure out like, okay, how are we going to continue this like protest movement breaks out and the players are there. Like they are across the country going to a lot of these protests and are like meeting with community organizers in the various cities that they live in and whatnot. And so how do you, as a league, figure out how to appease the players without whom the, your product does not exist and also remove all of them from the political con, drop them into a bunch of hotels and gyms and Disney World <laughs> to play a game to fulfill TV contracts.
0: Like it's a right that is also sustained by more marginalized workers who live from the outskirts of, you know, Florida, Orlando. right? Yeah, yeah, Orlando, yeah, who can't totally submit themselves to a regime of, you know, physical distancing, et cetera, et cetera, both by the nature of their work and because, like, I mean, we were still having trouble getting masks and stuff at that point.
1: Totally. And this is all happening. As COVID was spiking for the first time in Florida in the summer. So, th- this is an absurd thing to ask. And a lot right. of oh, players. And,
0: by the way, and we've just found out that those numbers were totally juiced. And that woman, I don't know if you saw, who was supposed to be covering for them for the state and kept leaking like they're fudging the numbers. DeSantis just had a SWAT team invade her home sees all her stuff or whatever. So like that was going on. I didn't even know about it until a couple days ago. Like, mm-hmm. and now it's all been like starting to get aired out.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a nightmare situation that you want to then place this like family friendly product on top of and be like, well, we've still got to have all, we have all these ad spaces for these movies that aren't going to play in theaters. But Christopher Nolan, he's going to go ahead anyway. So we're going to have to show something to show these fucking tenant ads. To people. (laughs) So let's just fly in all of these NBA players who, you know, because it's the summer and because usually they're off during the summer, most of them are having kids because they've oriented their lives around the NBA season. So they all have to like leave their like very new families, fly into a bubble where they have to stay for three months in a row, get tested regularly with staff that, as you said, are like in the hot zone. And do all of this for what exactly? So that a bunch of like hedge fund people can make millions upon millions more dollars because the owners take 50% of the money that is made each season in the NBA and there's 30 owners and then the 300 players get the other
0: half. 50%? That's wild. I didn't know that it was that off. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And every year there's a salary cap based on the money that comes into the league that determines what that 50% is to then divide amongst the players for each team, which of course creates this awful situation where that means that the owners want to pay the good players below their market value so that they don't become, you know, a financial burden to the team. And also if you trade a player who has, is being paid like closer like by a margin to their actual market value, they become hated by the fan base who now resent them for making the team unable to do anything financially to make themselves better.
0: Yeah, totally. And also it creates, I mean, the NFL has the same problem, right? Where there are all the first string guys who are like doing pretty well, especially the quarterbacks or like, you know, whatever, you know, the defensive and offensive line guys, really, unless they super stand out, like, and then you have like all the bench warmer dudes who are like, destroying their bodies to make pretty substandard wages for the risk.
1: Exactly. And it's, it's the same thing in the NBA. You know, you've got your LeBron James's and Steph Curry's and Kevin Durant's, what have you that have like shoe deals and our sponsorships and are you know, the media face for various companies and whatnot. But then you've got someone like say Lou Dort who no one's ever heard of, but, Played games in the bubble and it's like his first year and is making a fraction of what those guys are making, even compared then to the absolutely gargantuan amount of money that Steve Ballmer and James Dolan are making, you know,
0: who are owners of these teams. Right.
1: Right. I, I perhaps should have went with the other, like Mark Cuban is probably the most well-known NBA owner. And then Steve Ballmer is the other, cause he's a former Microsoft
2: guy. Oh uh, yeah. The famous video yeah,
1: yeah. come on
0: <laughs> yeah is he the one guy who's like bald and broad-shouldered and like really souped up yeah the only one with yeah. a sense of rhythm or personality yeah like, <laughs> yeah
1: which he does bring to the games which is pretty funny like watching him at clippers games and he'll, you'll see him just like screaming in the background like waving his arms around like a maniac so he at least it's clear that he enjoys the game <laughs> yeah
0: well, i can respect that at least but yeah i mean the divides here are, astronomical i mean i like that you brought up how many of these guys are from the balkan region Mm -hmm. you know uh tony kukoc of the bulls being sort of the tip of the spear for for that and i mean my family's croatian and so seeing kukoc on the bulls i mean i was living in chicago in the 90s like it's hard to do better when you're a kid than that you know like um but i remember when you know tony kukoc uh, was playing like my dad was suddenly into basketball because it was like you know there's a croat on the field but it's also and you touch on it briefly but don't spend a lot of time on it i mean they're coming from their own, for their own context which has its own problems um and their own like class and ethnic stuff that's happening there too you know yeah
1: i I didn't want to go too deep into that because i don't honestly know too much about like post yugoslavia
0: oh dude it's a mess like i'm not even comfortable talking about that shit i mean my family in croatia won't talk to us because they call us fucking half breeds because we're half (laughs) irish you know like it gets fucking wild Um, (laughs) but i think i just wanted to touch on it as an element of what's happening you know
1: and what i think the important thing to to draw from it is that for a lot of these NBA players, even the white European players are not coming from great backgrounds necessarily. Um, and sort of to our point that we made previously about like who is able to put their body on the line in this way or who who can make that calculus work for them in their heads are people that like largely there are few other options, you know? And that's the case even f- for like Bam Bio and the main score on.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, this is something that I was thinking a lot about when I was um, watching UFC fights this year. Because I mean, ev- if anybody's an MMA fan, like every UFC promo that came out, like once they figured out how to do, because for a while they had like their thing at their performance institute or whatever that they did. And even today, it's every promo begins the same. It's the announcements of every other sport closing or stuff like that, you know. And of course, Dana White's like pumping himself up, like you know, and then him being like, "I refuse to like let MMA fall by the wayside." Um, while this happens, I'm gonna this figure is like it literally out.
1: Literally, the children of men, like England Dude. soldiers, on. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Totally. Totally. So they figured out how to do it, and one of the things you talk about in the piece is what it's like to watch basketball without the crowd there. So it's missing this whole other element. And there's this sort of like idea of purity, whatever that's supposed to mean, you know, um, often lends itself to like stat crunchers and all sorts of other things. Um, It can often ironically make the game even more abstract in the after action uh, than it already is because it's missing this other human dynamic that's at play there. And it was the same thing for MMA. But what was really weird is again, like n- not a lot of fighters are coming from great backgrounds. That's always been true. You know, boxings like that. If anybody wants to read a great thing on boxing, is Joyce Carol Oates' on boxing where she talks about that um, a lot. But you know, it's a, called the poor boys game for a long time when it was just boxing. And you know, now we have MMA. So I think my experience of like the purity of it was super emotionally intense because, so look, there's this fight between these two guys. I don't even remember their names, but the crowd covers up a lot of what happens in that cage. I've done some MMA. I've done some jujitsu. You know, when you see that stuff like in person, up close, it's different. It's a different thing than when you're just watching it, like mediated on a screen or even in the audience. And there's this one guy whose corner refuses to throw in the towel And at some point, he picks a couple of his teeth up off the floor, gives them to the ref, puts his mouth guard back in, and then continues to get the shit beaten out of him for a fight. Afterwards, everyone was disgusted. Even Dana White was like, that guy needs to fire all of his corner men. That was one of the most horrific things I've ever seen. And I think before, people would have been like, that was like a bad fight, like should have thrown in the towel. But when you watched it, there was this sense of like outrage because you could hear every punch. You could hear his corner men, like fucking lie to him, you know, and like tell him to stay in the fight. And it created an uncomfortable intimacy in an already very naked and intimate sport. I mean, when you're wearing like nothing but like briefs in a cup and you get stone cold KO'd <laughs> in the middle of a caged off area, there is no other type of being alone than that type of being alone. When you wake up, and someone is basically like, this was your last shot at whatever you thought you were going to be. And it's over now. And you don't remember it, you know. Yeah, um, that's So COVID created this totally new, like emotional context for these sports to play out in as well.
1: Yeah. It didn't quite go down exactly like that in basketball for a few reasons. Um, one, I think basketball is general because it's on network television and isn't pay-per-view there's still the sense that it has to be like kid friendly to some extent.
0: Yeah. The UFC is not doing any of that. The closest they got was the Reebok deal. So nobody's wearing condom Depot across their crotch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, probably for the best. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of this is like Michael Jordan, the long tail of Michael Jordan's influence on the sport uh, is the idea that basketball is sold to literally everyone. Um, and because you only
0: get the one Dennis Rodman, you will only yeah. get the one, <laughs> right.
1: And the other difference is that the NBA players do have a players union. And as a result, I think that it was from what I understand, the players union didn't want the raw audio of what was happening on the court to be made available to not only the world at large, but also like potential employers in the league and whatnot. So having this mask of fake crowd noise and pumped in music protects the player's privacy. And this is something that I I kind of allude to. I actually wish I got into this more, but it's like a sort of more complicated idea that I didn't really have the mental bandwidth to tease out. But the degree to which the players on the court, as you said, they're abstractions once they're on television, but they're also, they become grist for this sort of like content machine that strips the actual humanity of the people playing the game away and terms, turns them into the, a series of GIFs and reaction images and archetypes that have no actual bearing on who these people are as people. They become memes, you know? And so to if there were NBA games in the bubble where you could hear literally everything, that would mean that there's no content, there's no moment that these players are existing that cannot then be turned into content that other people can use to make money. So I actually, I'm, as weird as I found the crowd noise, I 100% understand why the players would not want to raw dog it, so to speak.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes absolute sense to me. You know, it's interesting. So Dana White has this problem with the UFC, right? Is that it's it's a fucking PT Barnum thing. It's ridiculous, especially in like the early 2000s, right? When he's trying to basically save... The whole enterprise, you know, it's the Forrest Griffin Stefan Bonner fight after the reality show of the Ultimate Fighter that makes the company solvent again. You know, they just beat the hell out of each other for 15 minutes and it's still an unbelievable fight to watch. But it also lacks legitimacy, right? I said the Condom Depot thing, right? Because like you have all of that type of stuff going on. And it's clear that you have some. Really, like rough characters. I mean, it's a very character-filled sport because it's individuals, not team, and they're not unionized. But when you could get ads and stuff on your shorts, you could make a decent amount of money and never be like super great as a fighter. Like you could bring your personality to it, right? Once you get the reebok deal and you're not allowed to do that, that changes, and it creates the same sort of tiered system that we're talking about in the NBA and the NFL. It basically deletes the entire middle class of fighters overnight. And so we're watching these people in a pandemic, sometimes fly to Abu Dhabi, by the way, where Dana White had like a whole sweetheart deal with the government there to like make the sport viable for months. And to get international fighters who couldn't get flights elsewhere because, you know, passport stuff and restricted travel to make it happen. You think about like what type of like desperation kicks in for some of these guys. What you're willing to do because training is barely possible, like whatever is barely possible. One of the things I came away with from your pieces is that we're now about to enter an incredibly desperate time for all of these things that provide meaning in our lives. Even entertainment does that. You know, the basketball season structures people's lives, not just the players'. Mm -hmm. You know, same with, same with soccer, same with, you know, MMA, same with anything else. And it's also like part of how we tell stories about who we live and we're fascinated by human excellence and we're fascinated by all this other stuff because we should be, that's part of being alive. You know, we're interested in ourselves, not narcissistically, but because human capability is such a capacious and such an enriching thing to contemplate and the drama of sport and the expression of greatness is itself something to witness. And you could say similar but different things about watching a band click in in the groove live and transcending wherever you're at in that moment in a type of unspoken communion with everyone around you. And now we're seeing those thicker social elements get stripped away. And we're now watching a hollowing out of certain economies that even allow these things to happen or function at i would say a more humane level than they were before this
1: totally i i think your your point about the social element of this is something that should be expanded upon too is that not only is it like individually like edifying to watch a great basketball game and consider all of the personal narratives like as much as it is a team sport it's also the of the major sports in america it's the one where the personalities shine the brightest yes you know because these are people with no padding no helmets you can see their faces all the time and it tends to be a bunch of weirdos who. it's a smaller court
0: it's not like soccer you know where you have those huge like overhead cameras you know
1: Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, on like a personal level, like being able to watch all of the like 10 very interesting people play basketball against each other is gratifying personally, but also having a community that's organized around these sort of events, like going to fan meetups, like watching games at bars, watching games with friends, going to the arena, all this sort of stuff that is like really just completely absent from the bubble vision of the NBA. It's a, it's a profoundly like lonely experience. Like it's not quite the same thing to like have a text chain going while watching, you know, once it got to the finals, it's like these players who have been in the same spot for three months in a row without their families until the very end, beating the shit out of each other (laughs) in like a rock fight of an NBA game to like just close off this, whole wretched experience
0: yeah i mean totally like for me one of my favorite things to watch in the ufc is a fighter who's not only good obviously you love watching that but who's playing in a different who's fighting in a different country you know they're not the favorite and sometimes you'll see this moment after this in middle of the second round or however many rounds it is but after a certain time and people start cheering for the other guy or for their own country or whatever. And wherever this person is, some fighters just turn on because of that negative energy and then fucking destroy the other guy in front of all his beloved hometown fans. And you're like, damn, it does not get better.
1: Than this. Right. Yeah. That's like the Kobe Bryant thing. Like how he like fed himself on negativity. And that's, you know, a big part of why he was, uh, had such a, I, I have, like, very nerdy feelings about Kobe Bryant's actual, like, placements in the all-time greats, but as a cultural figure, so much of his uh, mythic heroic status came from the way that he'd be like, I'm going to ruin all of your nights tonight.
0: Yeah, 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 totally. Every single or the, person th- in
1: this arena is going to leave sad because of me.
0: Yeah, or, like, when, you know, the Detroit Pistons were, like, a thing. I, I think we've talked about this. I don't know if we talked about this with you before or just on the show before, but how even though it's like totally cynical and fucked up how brutal the pistons were in that era you know they basically just like beat the shit out of you like when you came allowed. to play it, it was allowed
1: called for fouls so yeah. that's the meta game so you pursue it you know yeah yeah
0: yeah but there was also this like you know this is also when i think the teams were closer to the cities that they lived in right i mean that's a little different now and i'm not going to shit on any players for like constantly swapping. I know people getting their feelings about that from the outside, from what I can tell, but it seemed like a little bit closer back then. And Detroit was still like the motor city and Detroit was still like a rough working class city in a lot of ways. And so I thought it was like, cool that there were these like dudes repping that part of America that would like, fuck you up if you came to play there. I was like, yeah, there's like a level of like personality and expression that, is important, I would say, to human life. There are all sorts of problems if we talk about them with these industries or whatever. But as you said, you have to separate the game from the context in which it's in. And you can understand them in relationship to each other, but keeping in mind that separation, I think is important to not become cynical and also to understand what you're looking at better, whether it's the business side or the sports side of it. And I think what's so devastating to me and that who will entertain in America, the question that you were asking is like, yeah, like how alienating everything feels, how it's somehow devoid of this um, frictive character. Everything feels smoothed over because it's so disaggregated from social context. It makes me sad is what I'm saying. (laughs) It makes me profoundly sad. sad sad.
1: Yes, it it made me sad too. I, You know, there were moments of like, interesting friction like the most like uh probably the event that i hope people take away from the bubble is the the milwaukee bucks wildcat strike after jacob blake was murdered in kenosha wisconsin and then following like the next day when there was the the shooting during the protest where two protesters got shot um by that you know was that
0: the kyle rittenhouse thing yeah
1: exactly that yeah, yeah yeah um so the next day like the next game the milwaukee bucks didn't come out on the court like they didn't consult the union yeah. They're just like we're not fucking playing today fuck mm-hmm. this and that caused like the entire league to kind of like shut down for a weekend basically and it showed like yeah like the this only exists because of how awesome these players are and the choices that they make on the court or off the court determines whether or not this product exists i am of the belief that they should have gotten more for the leverage that they had at that moment i think there's a a real sense that some other powers in the league kind of sold out the rest of the players union.
0: Oh, not just them. Dad called.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. Obama called,
0: called. (laughs) (laughs) you know, we can't say it like that to me.
2: I read that and I was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Like Obama barely did anything until they were like, you have to come keep Biden in. Like basically he like stayed out of stuff to protect his legacy. I'm assuming.
0: I mean, he made two very important phone calls this year, and that was the second one. Yep.
1: <laughs> you know Bernie's not going to win, and basketball's not going to stop. Yeah Exactly that was the Obama platform in 2020. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um,
0: and I agree, I thought it was cool when that happened. I thought some of the like. I think people are a little overexcited about the bucks thing at the same time. I don't really fault them for that because it's been such a wretched year. And also because we're so disconnected from labor politics in general, that it's easy to be like totally, you know, uh, over charmed i would say by certain elements that i I respected it i thought it was cool i wish they had gotten more for it most definitely and i'm sure that they were sold out by like elements even within their ranks because of course that's how it goes when you're playing for a pot that big Mm -hmm. you know at that level i mean that's like that's what's going to happen so yeah you're right it wasn't like totally devoid of conflict but i think the fact that it disappeared so quickly um And the way in which it did shows me that some of the stuff that we're seeing accelerate now got started by uh, certain people before this even happened. Um, And this is a continuation of things. But I think everything we're talking about speaks so directly to return to talking about Code Orange as we were at the top. And your third piece, this band, they have created this community around them that has managed to endure. So I was wondering if you'd like walk us through what they managed to pull off this year, and then we can sort of get into it with them a little bit.
1: Sure. Uh, So sans the whole history of the band, basically code orange who are on their fourth full length album. They dropped their, their newest and I think best album called underneath the day after the NBA got shut down, which is just like, perfect for me as a writer it's like oh of course i have to write about all this stuff together now and the next day they played their like hometown release show to wait did
0: you no, say march march 15th
1: uh no march 13th so okay. it's friday the 13th is when they released their yeah writer.
0: but close enough to the ides is it not
1: yes. yeah i mean i i guess the extremely superstitious of us could look at all of the things that happened in america <laughs> being basically in the starting of yeah. the ides I hadn't considered that but yeah so code orange sans being able to tour they've done three live stream concerts this year first one by themselves acoustic live stream that was basically a a recreation of the mtv unplugged series and then a third one that they did released on halloween that sort of stood in for their um their headlining tour that they would have done in america so they got each of the bands that would have gone on tour with them to also do a set Live streaming to an audience that well, technically it's not live streaming, it's all pre recorded, but you would buy in and watch the pre recorded things air live. So it's essentially like the Gen Z version of Rock and Roll Circus, that old like Rolling Stones concert, except with bounce riffs and breakdowns. So much better, oh, in my yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they've created this, as you said, like I Am Kang comes out, and when you hear Jamie scream that. You can start to feel like maybe we are king and maybe even you are king when you hear it, which I thought was a great like, exegesis of the genius of the band. Thank you. Here's one of the things that I was thinking about. They've created this sense of we. They're definitely a flyover country band. They're from, I mean, Pittsburgh's not a nothing city, but like Pennsylvania is not like, it's important electorally and otherwise people don't think
1: about it. Yeah. Uh, so, that was another reason why I'm glad that I wrote about them just because like, however it went in Pennsylvania, I was like, well, people are going to care about Pennsylvania by yeah. the time that this article comes out.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm thinking about Kiss Army and the vision of Kiss Army. I An army, a collective of people brought together like under this. And the same thing with converge cult, right? Like I remember that phrase getting patted about and that's sort of like the initiates into whatever the converge thing is. I mean, I think that was smart because it's part of their, I mean, they've been around forever, you know? So the idea that no one's paying attention and that your communicants in this secret thing, even as they got bigger, still had some hold because that was their general vibe. That's how they came to be. What I think is interesting about Code Orange is their slogan, which is thinners of the herd. And one of the things that I like about that is, A, it's fucking heavy, um, and that's cool. But there's also a part of it that makes me uncomfortable. And there is a level, I would argue, of like neoliberal subjectivity laced into that idea. Mm. You're the thinners of the herd. You're out in front. It's not that you're a collective entering into this thing. It's that you're defined by the way you excel beyond everyone else.
1: Yeah, i and like, sort of...
0: that's a different vibe to me. And I don't, obviously, I still think it's sick. <laughs> and I like, I'm into it. But I think that that's something that I was thinking about while I was reading your piece.
1: That's, a, a I think, a very astute point. Um, and one that I didn't necessarily get into, I sort of looked at as like, this sort of continuation of the heavy metal fascination with like Nietzsche. And this sort of like, excelling beyond the norms and beyond- and Beyond good how, and evil, yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is how like the heavy metal interpretation of of Miche, which is not particularly bright and I'm sure that <laughs> people- And it people
0: shouldn't actually, be because that's how we like it,
1: Goddamn it. <laughs> I'm just saying in case any of the smarter people listening want to take issue with my, uh, totally. my framing. But you're right, like Code Orange's attitude, so much of it, and they do have an attitude, which is I think why a lot of people Fuck yes they do but to your point a lot of where that stems from is this kind of self-belief in the, in them being like you know as they put it on the new record the last ones left like we're the real shit everything else is fake like asking Alexandria sucks code orange rules and it's it kind of feels like a, a bit of a regression compared to the more like poptimist mindset that had started to come in in heavy metal like they're a very different band than deaf heaven despite also coming from like Def Heaven are also from Flyover Country, but have this much more sort of, you know, refined taste and sense of inclusion. To their yeah, resume. they're
0: they're riffing with their pinkies up. That's for yeah, sure.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, whereas Code Orange is like every other band that could exist is worse than us. And if you, <laughs> if yes, you, if you like that shit, then you're a dumbass, and not in the way that we're dumbasses in a bad way. So like, separate yourself from the weak. Like trample the weak, hurdle the dead. That kind of mindset.
0: I think about it also aesthetically as a change for them, right? So I started listening to them in 2011, back when the Toxic Breeds Funhouse media fire, um, sharing website still existed and was up. And that's how I got their original like, demos and EPs, which always had these diptychs of like liminal spaces and suburbia or flyover country and like roadkill. Or something like that. And there's this strange fusion of like ex-herb aesthetics and then like the nastiness and decay of the natural world. And as soon as I saw that, I think your assessment of their early stuff, which is like pure momentum and gumption and like actually not that interesting to listen to. But I remember thinking like, whatever this band's doing, like they have some sort of vision. That's what set them apart for me is that I was like, okay, they're not there yet. But like they they have a vision. Of course, as they move into their first Deathwish Inc. release, where the lead singer the lead single is like "Flower" or something like that, it uh, still flower has flower
1: mouth. Yeah, flower
0: mouth. Yeah, it has like these earthy, pastoral elements to it that are interested in decay, urban and rural, and fusing them together. But as this band gets more popular, they start to shift out of that. You can start to see it in "I Am King," not just because they start pulling from more like um, let's say, tech-minded references in the heyday of that in the mid-90s, early 90s, but also because I think that as they get bigger, they're starting to become more mediatized. Once you get on a ma- major label, once you get into the Grammys, you start looking at different things. You're not just looking around at what's on your front lawn and is dying and like a, a, and inspecting that like rabbit corpse or whatever. You start to develop different critiques. And I think the way that they've been able to assimilate that into their music, this more technical glitchy sound or more critiques of the social media space shows that the only reason they were able to do that is because they had vision in the first place. And because this is rare, by the way, this is incredibly rare. They had a sense of connoisseurship and a type of inner cultivation, that allow, has allowed them to assimilate these things as they've changed and make them part of a repertoire of internal references, a whole psychic landscape that you as a listener can enter into.
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the most influential people in music in the last decade was ASAP yams of ASAP mob. Um, in part because he did that exact, he sort of laid out the blueprint of how to do this. Like there was a blog that was the ASAP blog before any of the rappers got launched there where he would just sort of post all these like old Southern rappers and like all these images that then became like the reference points for the entire aesthetic that got launched in by like ASAP Rocky and all them. And I bring that up just to say, I think Code where they have a vision that extends beyond riff good, riff bad. And captures this whole aesthetic mood that then they can pick and choose like okay trench coats yes synthesizers like these kinds of samples these sort of images because they suggest something larger than just like is this breakdown heavy and i think all of that adds up to their breakdowns being even heavier as code orange put it like enter my world you know um Mm-hmm. Now And now we kind of do live in their world because they are able to present their art in this sort of incredibly unmediated or hyper mediated to the point where the mediation is the art sort of setting of the live stream.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that's the uh, huge effect of Back Inside the Glass, which is their... L- most recent and probably last for the year major live stream event, which featured other bands, machine girl having a very similar vibe, I think to them just from Mm -hmm. the opposite um, side where, where it goes from like techno into heavier things. And they go from heavier things into like glitched out electronic stuff, you know? And I mean, to me there's been a huge amount of solace I've taken in their music because they they're so vital and they're so serious sometimes drifting into being like self-serious, you know, but sure. But
1: again, to your point, like that's what makes so many great metal bands. Great is a certain degree of self-seriousness.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I remember seeing this interview with Jamie, they had practiced their live set 50 times before they even started touring. I mean, that's like a black flag level of work ethic which the work ethic of black flag is like what starts to destroy the band after a while, like six hour practices, six days a week, like stuff like that. It's just like, it's a death march, you know, to be able to do that, you have to be operating on something else. And I like your idea of like these almost like uh, internet vision boards that get created um, for these references, but you know, everything gets talked about as a reference. And that's something that you, touch on in the piece when you get to the end, when you're just like, yeah, they wear their influences on their sleeve, but it's also clear that there's something more that's happening. And there's just like an anxiety of influence that's going on there. But there's also like a cultivation, I think is an idea that we've let go of in terms of what artists do and how they become themselves you know, when I think of that phrase, I think of like David Bowie, who has all of these iterations and ways he learns to look at the world. And I had a, a sense of that when you talk about at the end your interview with uh, Jacob Bannon of Converge.
1: Yeah. To, so that interview was. From a while back like it wasn't done for this story but it was just like this quote that i'd been sitting on like it never made it into the piece that it was originally for but i was like look i've got jacob Bannon quotes that i'm sitting on they're gonna get used somewhere because like yeah when the man speaks listen yeah precisely and so i asked uh, for a while he had been going on stage and saying like our job as converge is to inspire the next converge And when I first heard this when I was like 22 or so, I was like, that seems kind of sad, you know, that like the ambition of a band could run out to the point where the only thing left is to like give birth to another band. Like, what about the Converge that we already have? Like, why not keep making great shit yourself? And so I asked him like, okay, if that's the case, if you see your your job as, um, you know, sparking the next Converge or like, ushering in the next converge like who who's up next and he said two bands he said code orange and full of hell and i don't have a ton to say about full of hell i just i'm not particularly i don't have an in-depth knowledge of their work the code orange one i was like that's weird because code orange after that first album don't sound anything like converge really
0: you know no the idea of posterity is aesthetically in that way remote so he's talking about something
1: else Right. And so what is that? Something else was something that was like nagging me for a long period of time. I still don't quite know if I understand why he said it. I think he's probably more qualified to answer that about what he saw because, you know, Converge never got signed to Roadrunner Records. Converge never played at NXT, you know, like Code Orange have gone onto a whole other strata of fame that, uh, that Converge cannot access or likely will never access. But it, Nowadays, when I think about that quote and I think about like that impulse that Bannon is describing about inspiring the next iteration, I don't see it as sad anymore because I think it's actually, in some cases, the most noble thing you can do is to leave the door open to let the next generation in and to pick up where you left off. It's like the end of no country, you know, like someone has to keep carrying the torch into the darkness. You can't do it forever.
0: I was really taken with that because Converge seems so singular when they were out, there was nobody quite like them. They had the merch aesthetic. They had, you know, this, this other thing going on, especially after Jane Doe. And then I think, especially for me after No Heroes, um, cause that's to me, really when Kurt Ballou comes into his, uh, his own as an engineer and producer and he figures out what he wants to do with drums and guitars. Um, But all that nerdy shit aside, it just didn't seem possible. In the same way, it didn't seem possible for there to be another Dillinger escape plan. Like that just wasn't going to happen. So when I see Code Orange, I really see the fact that I'm in my 30s. You know, I'm like, I'm like, these guys are younger than me. Uh, Thank God you fucking could not pay me to be in my teens or 20s again. But there was a nice bittersweet moment of closure when I got to your piece where I was like, we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about why nothing feels possible. Part of that's because nobody's really thinking too far beyond their own lifetime. And it's nice to know that there have been and still are people that are thinking that way. And that I can try to think that way too, even when it comes to cultural touchstones and things like that, that that's important. There's an idea of, I use this phrase all the time, but stewardship, that comes with this. I mean, I've heard Chris Ott talk about that often doing his like counterfactual histories or like, you know, demystifying certain elements of a scene or an artist's life or something like that, that has given me some of the most profound cultural insights into music I care deeply about because it goes beyond the patent narratives and hagiography. And his intention is to hand that down to people after him, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I, I want to briefly to kind of, bring all of this into focus, I want to return to one of the things that I brought up in my NBA article, which is that before the the games actually began, Meek Mill gave this like speech, you know, of course he sort of sits at this like perfect um, center between the NBA's like front facing political quote unquote side and their cultural cachet because, you know, he went to prison for a long time. He's an advocate. But at the end of his speech, he said, like, I try and put stories into my music to help people make sense of life. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the basic idea. And so I think about like, what's the story here? Like, what story do we learn from watching Code Orange? And I think to your point about how it has like, on one level, it's like, yeah, thinking beyond the lifespan of Converge, but it also you can take that as a metaphor for thinking beyond your own lifespan. And maybe the thing that we need to do in all of our various walks of life, be they artistic or be they, you know, based closer to reality is think how can the next can, how can I spark the next converge as well?
0: There's like a, there's a responsibility at work that I think really needs to be recovered, especially after everything you have just so well captured in your triptych on what's happening to these sources of entertainment and artistic and athletic expression is that, There needs to be not just some changing of the guard in a lot of ways in terms of like who's in charge of what and who gets what, which I think is sorely needed all over American society, but that there needs to be this sort of renewal that comes out of a sense of responsibility, you know, um, that these are things that we all share in that. And so I think the real test for me is going to be how code orange ages, And whether or not they've painted themselves into a corner already with some of the ways that they have identified themselves as a band. And I think that would be profoundly interesting too, because I'm not asking someone to totally morally conform to what my vision of things should be is, you know, because I do think if they flame out, that's another interesting thing to observe both in their life, life as a band and um, as people who think i they seem very wedded to their scene, and they take care of other bands. And I don't think that that will happen to them. Um, but you know, I think that that should be a test for all of us. You know,
1: yeah, it's it's going to be a long winter. Uh, so anything that we can do to, you know, fortify ourselves and prepare ourselves for what's coming up, and all the various people that are going to have to fall in our wake, absolutely. I think that you can look to, I, that's sort of like a vague, but to your point about court orange, the thing that excites me is that I look at their career and I still see a lot of untapped potential. Yes. And, and that is a feeling that I would not sacrifice for certainty, you know?
0: No, no it's too exciting. It's too fun, yeah. you know? And I'm glad that there's something that feels that way. You know, I'm glad that there's a band when they're hitting their peak uh, that's catchphrases forever, you know like that's such an insane thing to say in this day and age where nothing feels like it lasts <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um so i think we can leave it at that john i don't know if you have any parting thoughts or questions you want to say before we wrap it up
2: i didn't want to intrude because i i'm coming at it maybe from somebody who basically just totally dropped out of the discursive space of heavy music and so i think when i listen to um code orange i was like yeah the slays like the slaps this is pretty tight but like that's as far as it could really go for me because i totally lost the plot and um it was interesting though because like listening to you guys talk i was like wow like i never really thought about how music is like this discursive thing in a way because chris thought he'll often bring up like oh yeah like this fucking record like me and my friends just listened to it for two weeks straight staring out of our windows at like the bleakness of the countryside and it changed my life but i don't know what kids would get out of it today and i would go listen to it and i would be like yeah like this is a pretty good record but like something like i could not listen to this for two weeks straight um and stare out of the window and i was just thinking like and that you know it's It's like you were saying, like, we're all a bit older now, and I just kind of, for whatever reason, lost interest, I think, in the scene, Um, and I ended up just having weird eclectic tastes from that point on that really didn't fit into any, like, there's no more, like, social milieu to my listening any longer, like, I don't typically have people to talk to about any of it, so it's kind of like a different sort of thing but it's nice to like, be able to look at you guys talking about this and still clearly like very aware of what's going on and like why certain things matter, you know, and why certain things don't matter and how like that's still happening, you know, cause that was happening for me when I was a teenager in my early twenties and it's still happening for kids today. And I definitely like, you know, this is the first like hopeful thing we've talked about on the podcast, honestly, was that like there's yeah. something going on that people can look forward to. Like <laughs> yeah. there will yeah. be a future after all this stuff and it'll be like good. We hope. So I think, you know, that is kind of, it's momentous. That's
1: all I can hope for. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's
0: uh that's all I can hope for too. So I think, uh, well, this will come out probably a little bit after the new year. So hopefully this will be a positive step into 2021. Because we're now living in science fiction, and those are the years that we're living through. I still feel <laughs> ridiculous saying things like that. But um, Ian, thank you so much. This was a joy, as always. Thank you. Um, thank and of you. course, we'll have you on again at a certain point to check in with some stuff. But uh, this is great. So, yeah. listener, um, you can check the links to Ian's stuff in the show notes. Uh, subscribe to his Substack. It's good. Pay for his music. It's also good. Be nice to him because he's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, stay safe out there. Yeah, you see, see y'all me. later. Great
1: talking to y'all.